0: You're listening to Unleashed by Nonstop Dogware, the podcast where you get inspirational stories and useful knowledge from dog lovers all over the world. This is your host Jeanette. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of our brand new podcast. We're starting off with one of the best mushers in the world. He won the rod four times and broke the record two times. When he's not training or racing with his dog, he's sharing his philosophy on how to build a team with everything from athletes to business leaders. And today he will share it with you. Dallas CV all the way from Alaska, welcome.
1: I'm happy to be here in Norway once again. I've raced to Finnmark now twice and over the last two years, I think I've been in Norway about five months. Um, Mostly, of course, for the races, but also coming over in the fall and preparing things or uh, just kind of like now coming over kind of for a visit
0: and dogs is a big part of your life and uh, as far as i know it's been a part of your life since you were a kid
1: my family has been mushing dogs for i don't know 55 years now and it started with my grandfather moving to alaska largely because he was interested in sled dogs and of course the alaskan way of life i suppose so um that was only supposed to be a couple of years that he was going to spend in Alaska, but kind of got hooked. And sled dogs have been a big part of my family's life ever since then. My dad was four years old when my grandpa first got sled dogs. And I was born into a, a kennel of, you know, mini dogs. So all of my memories are around sled dogs. And definitely my earliest memories are with sled dogs. So that has been my life, yes.
0: But you started doing... <clears throat> A totally different sport when you uh, were uh, younger. You did wrestling.
1: Yeah, I wrestled for about seven years where that was really my main focus. Um, And incidentally, that's also something that both my dad and my grandpa had done elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, that was my experience as a human athlete, which I think has really been helpful in many ways to now be more what I consider a coach, you know, teaching the athletes, which in this case, the dogs are those athletes in, uh, in a 1,000-mile race. The human has to be part of that team. The human has to be an athlete as well. But our main value is supporting the dogs so that they can perform at their best.
0: And this is one of the things where you are maybe one of the best in the world. Being a good leader for your dogs, you make them do extraordinary things for you. How how do you do that?
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a really... Um, Broad question, I suppose, but it is at the heart of what we do. It's about developing a team that will do anything for you. And I wouldn't say so much make them um, do something for you, but make them part of the team. And whatever that team does, we do it wholeheartedly and together. I think that's very important. A sled dog is very much a pack animal. They rely on the security and the strength of a pack, and they need to feel secure in that pack, and they need to feel that if we're going to run out into a blizzard or cross a big river or go through deep snow, they're never going to be doing that alone. They're always doing it with the pack, with them. Even if they're the lead dog, they know the rest of the team is right behind them and is going to help them through this. So at the, at the core of how do you get a dog team or any dog to do what you want or to do it wholeheartedly with you, it comes down to trust. It comes down to them knowing that you're never going to ask the dog or dog team to do something that they cannot do well. And I don't mean just accomplish the task, but do it well and have fun doing it. And it's, uh, that's based on trust, and that's based on a lifetime of teaching them, you know, this is going to be fun, we're going to do it together, and I'm never going to ask you to do something you can't do.
0: Can you tell us a bit more on how you build that trust? When do you start? Like, <laughs> what do you do when your dog is a puppy to, uh, to build that confidence?
1: Well, first of all, it absolutely starts as a puppy. And every interaction you have with that dog from day one, you're teaching them something. Whether or not you're consciously teaching them or whether or not you're aware that you're teaching them, they are learning from every interaction with you. So it's important that every interaction is the right kind of interaction and as a as a person you can't fake that you have to how do I say this you have to become the person you want to be you can't pretend to be in a certain way or pretend to be you know honest or trustworthy you just can't do that every single day and dogs will see through any act so that really needs to be I think your personality or your character Um, but in the beginning we're training Superman that's what I tell every handler we have working there is we're training Superman. What that means is we're training this dog to be invincible, to be able to do anything. And the secret there is to show them that they can do anything and never show them anything they can't do. Right. So in the beginning, um, I guess the human is the new thing in their environment. You know, When they're little, they're used to you know, from from birth. They're used to their mother and their little doghouse and their siblings and as a person, when we come into the pen, we're the new thing that's being introduced. And by being surrounded by the things they're familiar to, with, it helps bridge the gap with something new. Now, when they get to be a little bit older, let's say at five weeks, four to five weeks, by now they're very used to the human being in the pen or bringing the puppies with them in, in the house and petting them, whatever. And now it's time to start going on little walks. And I really love this, this transition because... Now when we take the puppy, usually just one, maybe two, um, out into the field or we're going to go for a little hike somewhere. (laughs) Obviously with a five-week-old puppy, we're not going very far. But it's interesting to see where now the environment is what's new and the human is the one familiar thing. And this is a major transition where we're no longer the new thing in their life. And for the rest of their life, we're going to be the thing that helps bridge the gap between the familiar and the unfamiliar. We're going to help interpret the world for these dogs. We're going to help them understand every new thing they see, whether that's, um, you know, a city when you're getting ready for the Iditarod or a blizzard or a storm out in the middle of the Iditarod Trail. Or some of my lead dogs go and do presentations and they'll be on a stage in front of 3000 people. Whatever that environment change is, I'm always the bridge. And that's where we're going to start seeing that close bond.
0: But if your dog has a bad experience with something because things can happen, you never know, even though you try to avoid it, things could happen. How do you handle it?
1: Calmly. Um, I think that's a really big differentiating factor in two teams. Um, It's not what the challenge is, it's how the team handles the challenge. You know, things happen in life. (laughs) Um, You're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days. Things happen when you're mushing with a team. You're going to get caught in a blizzard. But how do you handle it? I think the dogs are willing to, or any team is willing to forgive if things are done honestly and with the team's best interest in mind. So take, for example, you get into a big blizzard and maybe it's more than you can mush through. But if you look at it from the dog's point of view, they never knew that we were supposed to go through the blizzard. They never knew that we were supposed to end up at another checkpoint. That's a human mentality. That's a human understanding What they do know is that it gets really difficult and the musher took control and found a somewhat sheltered place for us to hunker down and wait out the storm. And yes, it's windy and yes, it's cold, but we, you know, as a group made this decision and, um, you know, the musher was always in control in contrast to if the musher keeps pushing, because in our mind, we have to make it to the next checkpoint. And if ever the dogs say, I can't do what they're asking me to do, then you've just broken trust. And so you're going to end up camping in the middle of the blizzard, but it will be because the dogs couldn't make it. That's an entirely different setting. So, if you're in a bad situation or something goes not how you planned, take control of it, rechart the course, and you know make a controlled landing rather than a crash landing. Right. So, I think trying to find a way to regain control of the situation. And what's the best thing for this dog team right now? That's the number one question you have to ask yourself every day. is What is the next best thing I do for this team in 10 seconds, in 10 days, over the next 10 years?
0: Is this a common mistake for many people that the focus is a bit wrong?
1: I think the most common mistake, and it's, a, it's an honest mistake, is that we see things from a human perspective. You know, most people have spent their entire life being a human. So when we see a problem, we naturally see that problem from a human perspective but our team is not a team of humans. Our team is a team of dogs. So they will look at the same problem very differently. So while we think we're solving the problem or while we think it shouldn't be a problem because we can cognitively understand, that's something the team doesn't necessarily see. So again, always remember that you have to look at the problem from your dog's point of view, not your point of view. Think about um, if you're traveling with a, a dog anywhere, right? We're going to think logistically about, oh, are we going to catch the next flight? Or do I have enough fuel to make it? Or where are we going to spend the night here? Those are not problems to your dog. All they know is, I've been in the crate and I really have to pee. <laughs> or you know So look at what is the problem for the dog. Also, the dog may not see any problem, but yet the human is all stressed out. And now they're starting to think, is the human or my leader, or the leader of this pack, irrational? Uh, because here they're completely stressed over something that, again, the dog sees no problem. Other times... We can cognitively understand that the next checkpoint's only three miles away. And okay, yes, it's been a long day, but it's not a big deal. We're almost there. But we only know that because we can see the GPS and we know the plan. The dog doesn't know the plan. The dog can't see the GPS. So you always have to be aware of, you know, maybe they're starting to be nervous and you're not supporting them or acknowledging their concerns. So again, see the problem as your dog sees it.
0: How do you use uh, your knowledge to motivate them?
1: I don't generally try to motivate them to do more than they should um, because I, I don't want to push a team. That's not really the, the goal. The goal is to support a team. And if the team is well hydrated, well rested, and has good body fat, they're going to do well. And this comes back to a lifetime of training and teaching these dogs that every time we take off for a run, they're going to be able to make it to the next stop and pulling hard, having a good time. They're not going to get tired on this run, and that's something you have to do with them every single day. I, I hate doing long runs. I almost never do long runs in races because you teach the team that they have to preserve themselves. You're not going to protect them. They have to back off. They have to decide not to pull so hard, and that's not something I ever want my team to learn. So my, my guys spend their entire life learning that they can lean into the harness, work hard, and I will be responsible enough to stop before they get tired. So it's not a trick to get them to work harder. No, it's just teaching them that they can always work hard and they're never going to get too tired doing that.
0: When you're building up a young dog, how do you uh, start?
1: Slowly. I don't think there's any hurry. Uh, I've talked to a lot of different mushers and people in different dog sports and a lot of people are very opinionated about where you're, when you start putting the harness on the dog I think that's highly individual, and I don't think there's any hurry in my, in my specific sport. I start out doing a lot of loose running, a lot of just puppy walks. You know, take a litter of puppies and go walk through the forest. You're building confidence. You're building a kind of a good agility base on that dog where they're bouncing through the forest and over the weeds and tripping over each other. This is great development. I usually end up putting a harness on a dog around a year old, and again, that's a highly individual thing. Some puppies, you can put them in a team and hook up six puppies that have never had a harness on before, and they do great. Other groups, uh, I will spend a lot of time doing can across with them, getting them comfortable to the harness. Some dogs, I will put a harness on them and let them run loose next to the team and let them kind of gradually decide when they're comfortable enough to buddy up next to their brother or sister and actually kind of join the team. That's a great way to overcome the fear of being tied together and usually a loud cart or, you know, four-wheeler behind them or sometimes a sled that's making strange noises. They can get comfortable with those noises from a little bit of a distance. And then uh, the first year of life, or I'm sorry, the first year that they're kind of in harness, between one and two years old, it's really about repetition. I don't care about really building any cardiovascular base. It's just getting out there, doing exercise, you know, five days a week up to maybe 20 mile runs, which for a long distance sled dog is nothing, right? That's just a fun jog. The next year between two and three, they'll actually start doing some more serious training, but now their bodies are fully developed, primarily fully developed, you know, by two years old, emotionally, mentally, they're not fully developed. They're still very immature. Um, So they're not going to try out or start training in my race team until they're three years old. And even as three year olds, they're a rookie. I'm not relying on them. You know, a lot of times we kind of skip that three-year-old year and don't count on them until they're four.
0: When you're putting together a team for a race, how how do you think and how do you mix the experienced dog, the young dogs?
1: That's, that's one of the fun kind of arts of this thing, I think, is putting together a team. Your first job is to develop each individual dog. Once you've done that, you can start to kind of bring them together into a team. And I've never had so many dogs that it's been, you know, s- trying to build a team or selecting this dog, because they fit the team better. It's always been, these are the dogs we have. These are the best athletes um, and they're going to have to work together and we're going to have to solve those problems. We're going to have to work through those problems. And sometimes that means you got dogs that just simply don't get along. And obviously we can keep them separated, but is there some anxiety just the fact that this other dog is, is here? So trying to, you know, develop those relationships and get dogs to be comfortable with each other and around each other But uh, I think you have to recognize if this is a young team or an old team or some of each, and what is our strength? If it's mostly a young team on a long distance race, our strength is probably going to be more speed, but we're going to need to keep the runs shorter and do more frequent rests. If it's an older team that just doesn't have that top end speed, they probably do have a little more confidence and developed um, endurance and strength that way. So we're probably going to do longer, slower runs, keep the speed down. So... When you recognize the team you do have, you then have to find how does this team be successful. How do I play to their strengths and avoid their weaknesses?
0: Can you tell us a bit more about uh, your dogs and how many dogs do you have? How uh, how do they live? Uh, as far as I know, you're building a new kennel, or did you already do it?
1: Yeah, I moved about two years ago, and um, kind of had a finally had a you know big piece of property where I could build the kennel I've wanted to build for some time and spent the last many years trying to figure out what is the perfect kennel look like. What we came up with is more of a zip line system of tethering dogs. I played with the idea of pins, but honestly with a large kennel, I don't like pins for two main reasons. One, it decreases the interaction with the dogs. You always have a gate between you and the dog. And as it is now, I can walk through the yard and pet one dog and the next dog and the next dog Every time I feed them, water them, obviously clean up after them. Your hands on all the time, always. You know, put your hands on the dog, feel the dog. You know, a furry dog may look fat, but <laughs> just furry. So I'm, I'm always trying to have physical contact with the dog. There and pens or fences really decrease the physical contact with the dog. Uh, secondly, is visibility. When you live in a place with a lot of snow, anytime you have fences, they build up with snow and you can't see through multiple layers of fencing and when you're in the house and you hear something you know happening in the dog yard you can't easily look out and see what's going on so i don't like the the decreased visibility and i guess the third thing is i think dogs like to have a little bit of private space they like to be able to lay down and curl up and have their favorite rock or their favorite bush or their you know climb in their house and not worry about some other dog you know bothering them i think they do like having a little bit of private space but then still being able to touch noses and play together. So to answer the questions, um, I have of about 100 dogs. When I say I have, that's not actually correct because there are, you know, me plus seven more people that live on site. Most of those people have been there for many years. And so it's kind of our dogs. You know, there's definitely some, some of the people that work there that have more ownership, if you will, with certain groups of dogs than I do because they've worked with them every single day since they were puppies. So they're probably closer with some of my dogs than I am. But it's, it's, it's a family. It's me, my fellow humans, and these dogs, and we work together all day, every single day. We all live on site. One of the nice things in, the, in our yard, in addition to the zip lines, which gives the dogs a much larger area to move, and they can also run in a straight line for a longer period of time, uh, as opposed to like a center pivot tether. I also have a huge run pin, and I utilize that quite a lot. So every day we can bring... Up to, I think we had 23 puppies in there the other day, chasing a ball. (laughs) Um, So that's pretty fun to be able to get them in there and have kind of social time, but then go back to their own kind of space where they can be social if they want, or they can kind of pull back and be by themselves if they'd like.
0: You seem to be very open to try new things, to do things a bit different than everybody else, and also open to learn from uh, other (laughs) people. Can you tell us some valuable lessons you got from uh, other sports?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot that we have learned from other sports. I'm always trying to seek out more knowledge from human athletes. So everything from the ski coaches in Alaska to um, I tracked down a lady who's very accomplished in ultra long distance cycling. We're talking 3,000 mile races and she's very accomplished at this. And what I really wanted to understand was I wanted to be able to talk to somebody who actually is riding a bicycle 20 hours a day. And is it more effective for them to eat a big meal and then sleep or snack during the day or combination? Is it better to sleep an hour at a time or sleep for six hours straight? Just kind of, you know, be able, is the closest thing to what I've ever seen... A human doing what a sled dog does on the Iditarod and this person could actually talk and so there's things that I've always wanted to ask my dogs that you can't really do so yeah we're definitely seeking out knowledge from people that have like or similar experiences other mushers I always like to assess what they're doing but I don't like to be trendy and that is when you see everybody doing something everybody starts copying it. (laughs) You know, Lance Mackey does long runs in the Iditarod pretty soon. The whole game is about who can go the farthest. So when you see a musher doing something, the question is not, does that work for them? Obviously it worked for Lance Mackey. The question is, will that work for my dogs? Or is there some aspect of what they're doing that would work with my team? And I want to be able to absorb the best of Lance Mackey, the best of Jeff King, the best of Martin Boozer, the best of Mitch Seavey, and pull that into my channel and to where you know, we, you create your own your own existence. But personally, obviously growing up wrestling and doing a lot of that, I feel like that's something that's really helped me understand what it's like to be the athlete and how to be a good coach to that athlete.
0: And you have managed to become one of the best people in the world doing this. Now people are looking up to you. They maybe uh, start copying things you do. What do you think about that? You are an important role model.
1: Perhaps. I spend 99% of my time in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sled dogs, and that's how I like it. I think the most important thing that's been helpful for me, and I think it's what we try to relate to anybody who's looking for advice or input, is don't look at the specific thing that somebody is doing. Look at it, again, from your dog's point of view. So... When, when I started my kennel, this was one of the big focuses is I felt that so many things in mushing had just become, this is how you do it. We didn't think about it anymore. And so many of the things that we were doing were simply from a human point of view, right? The, even the run lengths we were doing on the Iditarod was based off of the distance between the checkpoints because the checkpoints are provide amenities for a person. The checkpoint has no value to the dog. Um, so we really tried to look at those as a resupply station. And if what the team needs to do is a 50 mile run, then do 50 miles. Even if it's 60 miles to the checkpoint, stop 10 miles before the dogs don't care. There's no sense to push that extra distance just so that I can have a, a warm place to sleep. That's not a, a dog problem. That's a human problem. So looking at everything from the dog point of view and rebuilding mushing from the dog point of view. And I think that's what I hope to s- encourage is and anybody who is looking for advice from us. And I acknowledge and um, appreciate the fact that everybody has different types of dogs. So if there's any core value, it's what works for your dog or look at it from your dog's point of view because what I do might be completely wrong for another musher and vice versa.
0: You've had many dogs uh, throughout the years, but is it one dog that stood out?
1: Uh, There's been several that have stood out, I think, as those really special characters. Um, one would be Fridge, who was, uh, one of my first dogs that I got when I started my own kennel. And I had actually trained that dog as a two-year-old He belonged to my dad and was a very, very stubborn and independent dog. Um, super tough dog and one of the best athletes I'd ever worked with. So after I trained him and his brothers as two-year-olds that obviously those dogs belonged to my dad and, uh, handed him over, if you will. Peyton, who is Fridge's brother, became my dad's super leader, won the All-Alaska Sweepstakes with him, and has been a a major stud dog in Alaska. Uh, But my dad and Fridge never got along. That was not uh, a good match. So I was able to buy a very, very nice dog, Fridge, because he just simply did not get along with my dad. It's probably the only dog I've ever seen that is truly a one-person dog. He would do anything for me and nothing for anybody else. In fact, I did a, a show in Anchorage for many years. So twice a day, Fridge and I would do a leader demonstration where we were doing very precise steering, slaloming through barrels and picking up, You know, we'd have somebody throw a small object out in the, in the middle of this huge arena. And my trick was that I would mush the team by it so close that I could pick it up without getting off the sled. So people would try to put it very, very difficult places. And that same dog that could do that precise, you know, pinpoint steering, I went through 90 mile an hour winds on the Iditarod with. And um, what really made him special, I guess, is that that dog loved mushing beyond anything else. And I love working with dogs that love to mush as much as I do. So that's one of our top criteria when you're choosing who to breed is their desire to go, their joy for life, right? That's what I really enjoy working with. And that's pretty well sums up Reef, who is my super leader now, or he's now retired, but uh, just a freak of nature. The dog always wants to go. He's always excited about what we're doing next. And it's dogs like that that inspire you on the Iditarod. I don't want to be out there pushing a team. I want a team that's out there pulling me, right? Pulling me higher, helping me to do more and can kind of show, yes, this is tough, but we're gung-ho. We're excited about this. That's a team I can work with.
0: When do you see this in a dog? If it's uh, going to be a uh, top-notch
1: I don't I don't think that you can make any real definite decisions too young. I very rarely can make any any educated decision at less than 2 years old and even 2 I've seen dogs change and develop so much between 2 and 3 that it's it's tough. Man, that's a that's a really tough one. Um there's some dogs that stand out right off the bat they're the superstar yearling they're the superstar two-year-old and sure enough they're the one winning the Iditarod and lead as a three four five six seven eight-year-old you know all those years there's other dogs like Hero who's one of my favorite dogs Um, he's kind of my my pet dog now I guess and uh, he won the Iditarod with me a couple times he was one of my yellow rose leaders in 2015 And he is the largest dog or was the largest dog on my team at about 75 pounds. And he was a late developer, right? He's way too big to be a sled dog, at least an endurance sled dog. And obviously, as a two-year-old, he was not the star. He was big and awkward and gangly. As a three-year-old, he couldn't quite do it. And I neutered him because he was way too skinny. And by the time he was four, he was coming into his own. Big dogs take longer to develop. And then he won the Iditarod and was just... You know, did that a couple times, actually, and was one of those dogs that was always there, never had a problem, always reliable. You couldn't, you could not ask for a better dog, but yet, as a yearling and two-year-old, he was the bottom of the barrel.
0: I think it's very interesting to hear you talking about this, because many people seem to be a bit, not very patient when it comes to the dog, when they get a dog for some kind of sport, and uh, they want it to be perfect right away, but uh, with the right attitude and if you put in some work then all kinds of dogs can be great
1: i very much agree and i think that's one of the things i enjoy most is what what we do in dog sports uh is develop a dog that's the challenge that's the fun part is taking the dog from a to b and a is wherever they are right now whatever unique circumstances maybe it's a brand new puppy Maybe it's the perfect puppy with perfect genetics. Maybe it's a rescue dog that has other pre-existing issues, but taking a dog from where they are right now to be, which is whatever they can be, you know, the best version of themselves as possible. I think that's really fun to see. And that could be, you know, just finishing the Iditarod or starting Iditarod or having a great recreational team. It doesn't have to be measured by how they finish in a race. I honestly think my best, well, probably now my second best race ever was a fourth place finish in 2013 because I felt like that was the time that I was able to develop the team the most and ran that team to the best of their ability in the race. And that team was never going to be able to win. It was a bunch of two-year-old dogs, and they so outperformed what they should have been able to do, and they did it happily uh, they finished fourth and they should have been 20th. We went from 17th place to fourth place in the last few, you know, last couple hundred miles of the race. They were just flying to the finish line. And that same group of dogs built confidence. We didn't over push them to accomplish that goal. They built confidence. The next year in 2014, 15, 16, they won all of those Iditarods. So clearly it was a, a, a learning experience, a good experience. And that's really the fun part as a musher is when you see a team come together and outperform what they should have been able to do. And that's when you know you've done your job is you've helped these guys become better dogs and shoot fourth, first. Does it really matter? We built a team. That's the fun part.
0: Do you care about results at all?
1: I think in the end, well, now less than I did before. Absolutely. Um, But that's personal growth. I think the point of doing any of these things is to challenge ourselves and hopefully see some personal growth. Yeah, I do think, especially in 2012, you know, winning the Iditarod was a big, big goal. But Over the years, I think I have learned that winning a race is, an effect, not a cause. So we focus our energies on the cause. What causes you to win the Iditarod? Um, To run a perfect race. Okay, so the goal is now to run a perfect race. How do you run a perfect race? You set up that dog team for success at every turn. You make sure that they have everything they need. They're fully supported, and they're comfortable. They're relaxed. And so now the focus is really on making 10,000 absolutely perfect steps. And that creates a perfect race. So the goal is to run a perfect race. And sometimes that perfect race is fourth place. But that's the best that that team could possibly do. If you do that, you're going to win races. Or at least you're going to give yourself the best possible chance of winning races. I think that's the real, the real goal. And oddly enough, this last year in the Finmark was the first time I've ever not finished a race and it was really a unique situation for me team had gotten really sick before the race i thought they had mostly recovered prior to the race you know the the obvious signs the diarrhea and the vomiting had you know finished by the time the race started but they still seemed a little bit mm, flat i guess would be the right way to say it and fairly quickly into the race we realized that you know this isn't this isn't uh, going to be a good e- educational experience for these dogs I started off really slow, slowed down more, took our mandatory rests really early and eventually just pulled the plug. And looking back at it, you know, it seems like it should be a failure, right? We didn't finish the race, but you look at it and try to pinpoint what decision did we make that was wrong. And you start looking at it from that perspective. And I think we actually did a really good job of recognizing some small signs very early, reacting appropriately, and we made the right decisions. There's nowhere in this race that I can say, oh, here was a major mistake. If anything, I think I ran a more mature race than I have in other events previously. We, we saw the signs earlier. We made the right decision, even though knowing that taking my 16 that early in the race meant we weren't going to be competitive. So the fact that I was you know, doing a self-assessment, able to do that, I think um, I'm, I'm happy to see that I've maybe grown beyond the result orientation a little bit more. And I think it was a good race. We just didn't have a very good hand.
0: Yeah, this is interesting because... There's a lot of people, they expect you to win this race and it's a lot of pressure on you and you still manage to, uh, to make this decision.
1: That's, that's a really important aspect you touch on there because I've seen this happen in many Iditarod mushers. Um, we start having expectations and it's really important that last year is gone. Every year you wipe the slate clean. I don't care what my name is because the dogs sure as hell don't. <laughs> the dogs don't care if you're Jeff King or you're Lance Mack, you're, you're Dallas EV. The dogs are the dogs. They don't know that this is even a race. They don't know if they were first or last last year. They don't care. So if I'm caring about that sort of stuff, it's not helping my team. We have to be absolutely honest about what is this team ready to do well and really push the human expectations aside. And that can be hard to do. It's really hard when every checkpoint you have your, you know, the camera in your face wanting you to say that you're going to win this race when you're looking at a team that that's not in their best interest. And my job is to watch out for these dogs. Again, I'm always going to be the bridge between these dogs and their perception and the whole world. I have to help interpret the world for this team and protect them from that and help them accomplish that, whatever that is, whether it's a a thousand mile race or a walk in the park. So there's, it can be challenging to kind of push all that other stuff aside and not let it affect your decisions.
0: Being a musher, it takes years of experience. Can you tell us a bit about things you have learned throughout the years, (coughs) good and bad?
1: (laughs) I think we've, yeah, I think if you're trying to, you're always learning something. We do a lot of assessment, you know, even during a race, I try to take the 30,000 foot view here, right? Looking at your team as an aspect. Okay, I feel this way about the team. But why do I feel this way? Is it because I'm sleep deprived? Is it because I'm ambitious? Is it because I want to see something good? So that's what I'm seeing. Is it, you know? So taking that honest look at yourself, at the team, and I think that a constant assessment, you know, in the moment, the last year, um, the last five years, really helps us to to learn along the way. At one point, the biggest area we had to improve. Or the biggest problem I was running into is I felt that I was putting too much training into six months. Like, I felt like we had to do this much training, but I felt like I was always under pressure to do more, more, more. And I wasn't able to afford the time off that we needed. So that's where we ended up trying to figure out, how do I make the season longer? How do I have more time to train the dogs and we came up with the, the treadmill. So I have a you know, rather large refrigerated treadmill so I can actually run 14 to 16 dogs at a time and have it be cool temperatures even when it's hot outside. And this did exactly what we wanted to. I could take the same training we were doing in six months and spread it out over nine months. And I think we did a little more total mileage, but not any meaningful amount. The main focus was we just earned three months of rest time. We can now give them lots of time off between these major training events and have, you know, really make sure they can peak at the right time. But then what we saw was understanding that mushers were trendy. Other mushers saw that we were training year round or at least nine months out of the year. So their natural inclination was to train at that same six month intensity for three extra months. And I think this is a classic example of when you, emulate something or copy something, make sure that it's doing the right right thing for your team. And you don't always understand why somebody's doing that, you know, or learn a little more. Because what we saw was what used to be a small overtraining issue just became a much bigger overtraining issue. And I think people are now starting to figure that out a little bit better. Um, so, yeah, there's some there's some warnings. Just because somebody's doing something doesn't mean, A, that you understand why they're doing it or B, that it's going to be the right thing for your team. So at the end of the day, you have to be responsible for your guys and look at your team. Will this help them or how will this help them? There's been so many little things. I don't know how you could pinpoint one or two, but uh, we've definitely made mistakes. And I think being open and able to make mistakes is the only way you're going to learn from it. right? You have to be able to look at it and say, yeah, I screwed that up. <laughs> um, if you try to justify it say, well, I didn't really make that Big of a mistake there. You may not learn from it. Um, one one mistake I definitely made was 2010 was my second competitive Iditarod, the second time that I was racing with my my own team. The year before, we had had a great finish and really outperformed what we thought we were going to do. And the next year, I started. I guess you would say pushing on the Iditarod. We were near the finish, but maybe a little not near enough to the finish. And it was the first time that I. Felt like I was actually having almost to push the team. And we're talking about shades of gray here. There's very, you know, it's 48% instead of 52%, right? But I just had this, you know, kind of a feeling that this is not fun. I don't want to run a team like this. Um, And I really had to let that sink in hard to make sure. I never want to be in a situation where I feel like I'm asking the dogs to do something that they're not excited to do. And I really let that make a big impact because that has to stay with you for a long time. So when you see that situation specifically going through Gallivan, it was, I guess, I guess what it was is you put yourself in the dog's shoes and here they see a town and they think it's a checkpoint and they're excited, they get there and then they go through that checkpoint and they don't know that White Mountain is only 15 miles away. I mean, Gallivan is not a checkpoint. It just from their perspective, it looks like a checkpoint. It's a town. We mush up into it. There's people. We go through the town. We pop out on the sea ice on the other side. And it was, you know, when they're looking around, not sure what just happened, I don't know, it just left a mark and something I don't ever want to be in that situation with a team where they're unsure and, you know, a little feel vulnerable, I guess is what it is. So I've really made it a point to always make them feel secure. Always let them know that this is something they can do. Always make sure that they're rested enough to easily do whatever's in front of them.
0: You talk about uh, your dogs uh, feeling confident, being secure, and uh, having the motivation to work themselves. But what about you being a musher? It takes a lot of work, long hours, a lot of training, bad weather. How do you uh, stay motivated all the time?
1: Um, <laughs> I guess it's work. You know, a, a lot of it's uncomfortable at times, but I really enjoy it. That's just what I do. And a lot of being out there in the cold for, you know, let's say an eight hour run, which would be a really long run for me. Eight hours straight of, you know, standing there, wind in your face. That's something that I've been doing since I was very young and I know how to cope with that. Now put me inside in front of a computer for eight hours straight and I'm I go crazy, right? I'm just I haven't internally developed a coping mechanism for that. Whereas in the cold I definitely can. Um, but I, I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy training a dog team. I hate waking up after 45 minutes of sleep on your sixth or seventh day of an extended training period. It hurts, right? You're trying to wake up and it is physically painful to wake up with that little sleep. When you're that sleep deprived, you know, let's say on sixth or seventh day of the Iditarod, you're beat up. But I guess as far as the motivation on that is, at least on the races, I definitely feel like this team has worked really hard to get here. They deserve to be able to do the best they possibly can, and they deserve, for me, to do my job. So on the Iditarod, that's the the 10 days of the year that I have to be perfect. And training, um, you know, they they work hard, they do all this stuff, and I need to be able to stay on my schedule. I need to be able to get up after 45 minutes of sleep and get these guys ready to go and repack the sled so they're not waiting for me, make sure everything's organized so when we're running... I can make the next run as easy as possible for them, not have them standing around waiting for me to find where I put the snacks or find my mittens. Um, so I think the motivation is more a responsibility to the team. And this is, again, where I like having dogs that are gung-ho and charging because sometimes you go out there and you're putting the boots on and you might feel a little bit bad thinking, oh, am I am I going to be pushing these guys out of here? Are they not ready to go And you realize that you're putting your feelings on them. You're tired. You're not comfortable. Your hands are frozen. And uh, when the dogs start getting up and shaking off and barking and hitting the line, they motivate you to do better.
0: And at races, your team also consists of uh, handlers. How important are they? And how do you pick the right team?
1: Well, some races, um, it consists of handlers. Like the Finnmark, you can have handlers in the checkpoints that help take care of you essentially they can't do anything for your dog team, but they can provide you with food. On the Iditarod, once you leave the starting line, you can have no outside assistance. Nobody can help you with anything. Um, even advising you is not allowed, which is kind of an interesting, interesting setup because now it's it does come down to making good decisions while tired. Having a good team is really important. That's something. This last year in the Finmark, I had some some really good help out there, and it made a big difference. It just Made things easier than in training when you're doing it all by yourself, that's for sure. But what is also important, I think, is not to rely on those handlers too much in making decisions because you as the musher need to be very in tune with your dog team. You are part of that organism. I kind of feel like you know the dogs are my legs and the musher is the brain that are working together, right? But you have to have, the brain has to feel what's going on. And it's easy for the handlers to want you to do well in the race, position-wise. And it's easy for them to advise to be more competitive than you should be. And you, the musher, has to feel what's happening in the team and make the right decision. So I think that's that's a bit of a caution in the handler setup, is that they don't always have the same information. What they're looking at is, oh, your run time was faster than this other person, and if you take a little less rest, maybe you can catch up or pass them. And as a musher, you're looking at, yeah, our runtime was faster because this dog team worked really hard. They need more rest. I, I owe it to them so that they can run fast on the next one. So, um, again, the musher ultimately always has to be responsible for the team and make sure they have a finger on the pulse and and be careful not to take too much outside influence. Handlers can be no different than the media. They want you to do well. They're encouraging that. And it's one of the hardest things on a race like this last year to – come into the handlers who are working hard and they want you to do well and say, this is honestly what I'm seeing. And this is honestly the best call. And we're going to have to back off a little bit. Yeah. But that's what we got to do.
0: Before a race, do you have a plan on when to rest, how long to go, when to feed the dogs, or do you just take it as it goes?
1: Both. I think on the Iditarod, I'll speak on this one because I've spent a lot more time doing that. On the Iditarod, I have a playbook. I have a Pretty thorough understanding of what this team is good at and what's our best case scenario on the trail I think we're going to have. I have four or five different options on how to run the first 300 miles of the race, and I will switch between one play to the next depending on the information that I see when I'm out there. Okay, I thought it was going to be a hard trail. It turns out to be a soft trail. Now, instead of me having to completely come up with a new idea while racing, you can kind of flip through your playbook and say, oh, here's my, my slow trail trail plan for the first 300 miles you already have that one pre-arranged and that also leads into the next 300 miles where right here you have a couple different options for this section of the trail and it's it's not specifically in 300 mile sections but i have a lot of different options and this comes from very thoroughly assessing the race very thoroughly reviewing how it's been run by other mushers previously what worked on certain trails with similar dog teams what has worked for me in the past. And by doing a lot of studying by writing a lot of schedules, I think I become better at making decisions in the moment. Some mushers spend a lot of time writing a schedule and then they feel committed to that schedule because they've invested time into that schedule and they're slow to change that plan. So that's something that's not necessarily good, but I do think by doing your homework, doing your research, you become a better intuitive musher and can make better judgment calls on the trail. But I definitely am switching my plan hour by hour as the trail conditions change, as my dog team changes, as they react to a situation positively or negatively.
0: Does the same thing apply to your training?
1: I have a fairly solid idea of what I... how do you say this? Uh, there's four or five high points in the training year that I'm going to hit. We're going to, you know, accomplish this training exercise. Now, how I prepare them for that training exercise is going to depend, you know, day by day, depending on what you see from the team. I, <laughs> I it, this really frustrates the people that work with me because my training changes hourly. Again, there are those high points that I definitely know I want to hit, but we'll go and do a, a training series. Maybe we go up to the Denali Highway, highways a couple hours north of where I live. It's a great place to do long series of training. And we'll go up there and the handlers will say, okay, how long are we going to be gone? Uh, be ready to be gone for five or six days, but it might only be two days. And they're looking at you like, <laughs> do you really not have any more of a plan? Um, each run, you know, how long are we going to go on this one? I don't know exactly. I'll find a good place to stop. How long are we going to stop? I'll see. You know, you have to be in the moment as you're doing this because what we're really doing is riding a very, very fine line. You're trying to maintain a level of output from the dogs. You never want to bring them below a certain point. But for the entire span of this four or five days exercise, I never want them to be over-rested either. So we're keeping them in in a range that they can comfortably do. I want to keep them slowed down enough to where they're not running a high risk of injury by pushing themselves too hard. But I also want to keep them plenty rested to where we avoid, you know, getting to the possible injuries when you get to, too depleted, which means you've got to change your mind hourly. When we get done with this big run, all right, we're going to have eight days off. And then eight days comes and I say, oh, are we going again? No, nope, we need to have another day, another day, another day. And then now go, <laughs> all right? So we're, we're making these calls, you know, one minute at a time. And I think it can be very frustrating for the people who work with me. Because it is hourly, but it's not something you can predict. You just have to see and feel.
0: Do you ever feel stressed that you and your dogs won't be in shape, or do you not care? Uh,
1: I do care. Obviously, you have to care about it, I think. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I don't know if... Yeah, I guess I would have to admit to that it's... You know, I've been stressed, but it's not that they're not ready. It's I, I really care about making the right decision. And so you agonize over it and it's a detail, it's a minutia, but almost every year there's a time in probably January that you're really, it's, I always feel faced with some very, very tough decisions. Um, You feel obligated to, I don't want to say push, but do a lot of training and it's like, I'm back off, back off. And then that's what I'm I'm saying is, you know, I plan to take eight days off. It ends up being 12 days off. Then you feel a little bit behind, but when you see that moment that they've hit 100% health and they are truly ready to go again, that is to say they've maximized the recovery time after having done the previous exercise, now it's time to go, and there's no time to waste. That's why it's very precise. You have to let them fully recover, but then once they are, it's time to go again. Ironically, I see the same thing in a couple of the mushers that I think are really good intuitive mushers. They agonize over these little details in what it is, is they're seeing more than other mushers. You're seeing these minutiae. You're seeing what's going to happen in the future. And this means you're looking at something that's 1% off on a dog team. You see a lot of mushers that are always very confident in their team. It's always the best team ever. A lot of it is they're just not getting the input. They don't see a problem until it's you know, a 20% problem, not a 1% problem. So, of course, they seem to be you know, overconfident in their team, but it's sometimes that's a lack of knowledge of their team.
0: And it's all in the details. And what details do you plan on uh, adjusting and improving in the time to come to be even better?
1: (laughs) Every year we're trying to assess where is our biggest area of improvement. Going back to the beginning when I started mushing, one of the, the biggest goals was consistency. Uh, why is it that nobody can go more than three years in a row in the Iditarod in the top five? How is it that somebody can be so good and break the record one year and two years later they can't be in the top five? You know, when I started started racing competitively, I think in recent history at least since the mid '80s or late '80s, I think Martin Boozer and Lance Mackey were the only two mushers that went four years in a row in the top five. Jeff King, even who's you know we'd, we'd all agree is one of the top mushers in the Iditarod and very consistent. I think had only ever been three times in a row in the top five once in his entire career. So we started assessing what, what causes mushers to have a bad run and how do we mitigate those risks? How do you build consistency? Other, other times we've very much focused on how do you develop the best athlete? How do you develop the dog? That's what we're putting all of our interest in. No, I'm not going to worry about new equipment innovations this year. We are focusing on you know developing each individual The next year, yeah, okay, it's time to focus on equipment because I feel like we've, you know, moved these other things up to 90% of our potential. In this other area, equipment, we're still at 50%. We need to push that one up. Um, One year, my main focus on innovation or change was how do I go faster without making it harder for the dogs? I mean, just as a broad spectrum, look at everything you do. If you want to go faster on a race, you're either running faster, running longer, resting less, resting shorter, All of these things make it harder for the dogs. How do we go faster without making it harder for the dogs? How can we be more efficient so when I stop for four hours, they get more rest, right? So I'm always breaking it down to try to see an area to improve. So what's next? I don't know. I haven't fully decided yet. Um, I'm still in the assessment phase right now, Uh, what we need to learn more on. But I do think the last two years coming to Norway has been I don't know what we're going to learn, but we're going to learn something. You can't change the entire mushing world, you know, or the world you surround yourself with, right? Now I'm surrounded by the Norway mushers, and you can't do that and not learn something. So when I was doing these experiences, I think we tried very hard to have open eyes and be ready to learn anything from anyone.
0: If you had to do another dog sport, what do you think that would be?
1: Hmm... Um, do I have to get away from all mushing sports? <laughs> Let's say, yeah, where you can't put a harness on the dog. <laughs> you can't yeah. believe. I, mm, I've always been intrigued by um, herding dogs. You know, I, I really think that kind of communication and and working together with a dog to accomplish a common goal. And I've always appreciated that intense drive you see in a border collie where they just, is so part of who they are to want to put these sheep together <laughs> or ducks <laughs> or whatever it is. So I think it would probably be um, working with a herding dog. I think that would be just something that, I mean, sport or no, it's something I would love to experience and learn more about.
0: Have you ever uh, visited someone doing herding, trying to learn something from Not them?
1: really, no. <laughs> um, I've been so busy doing what I'm doing that... Um, I've never, I've, I've been around a lot of border collies. I've had um, relatives who've had border collies and they were always hurting this or that. And I've seen, of course, on TV, you know. But no, I've never, I've never been somewhere to actually see them really working. And it's, again, I don't know why that is what it is, but I, it's always intrigued me.
0: Maybe uh, some inspiration for the years to come. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, coming here and uh, joining us on this podcast.
1: Well, I appreciate being here and thanks for your excellent questions.
0: You've been listening to Unleashed by Nonstop Dogware. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for guests or topics to cover, please email us at unleashed at You can also follow Unleashed Pod on Instagram or visit nonstopdogware.com for more content. Remember to subscribe for more episodes.